Morning, everybody. I'm Lucas. Um, my wife is Antoinette. Our daughter is Josephine. Uh, they are not here right now. They're in first service because we've got a six-month-old, man, and she, she wakes up when she wants to wake up, right? Um, many, many times throughout the night, in fact, she wants to wake up. But uh, Like Jason said, I've been, a, I've been in education uh, here in Fort Collins for six years. I was a teacher at Rocky Mountain High School, and um, I've moved into a school counselor position at Istone Elementary um, high school to elementary, man. Big jump, right? New challenges. Um, we are going to be in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 10. Jason uh, taught through the first half of the chapter last week, and I'm going to take us from verse 10 through the end of the chapter in verse 17. Before I start, um, a big part of my job, both now and when I was teaching, Big part of my job was always trying to help kids see that what other people do should not impact what they do, right? So like, just because this person's doing that, that doesn't mean that you need to go do that with them, right? So with the high schoolers, it was more like, well, Mr. Smith, he looked at me weird, right? So I got to go like, got to go get in his face, right? And no, you don't have to. Is he talking to you? Nobody's talking to you. You don't have to go do that. Or with the elementary school kids, it's, well, I want the red marker, and they want the red marker too, and they're, you know, mean or whatever. Um, well, okay, so I see that you're upset, but what did you do, right? Like, what can you do? I know they're upsetting you, but what are you doing, right? And I think that um, in verse 10 here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul is hoping to make a, uh, a similar point to Timothy along those lines, okay? So we're going to start by reading, we start by reading verses 10 through 13, okay? We're going to make an observation. We're going to answer two questions. So let me just read verses 10 through 13 here out of 2 Timothy chapter 3. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. What kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured? Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. And in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Did y'all hear that one? Oh, man. Okay, well, we're going to talk about that. While evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. All right, so he starts with these two words, you, however... You, Timothy, however, and this is um, an unequivocal contrast between Timothy and the people that Paul just got done describing in the first half of chapter 3, which Jason talked to us about last week. In the first half of chapter 3, Paul is describing the last days. He's describing what people will do in the last days, what it's going to look like, um, and what false teachers are going to promote in life and teaching, and it's not a pretty picture. Okay, so he starts here by turning his attention to Timothy and saying, you, Timothy, ought to be different than that, right? You must be different than what else is going to happen in the last days. And that's where he starts. And this is, this is going to be a common theme. It already has been a common theme throughout First and Second Timothy. Um, the idea that how we live and what we do matters, right? And it ought to be different. It ought to be different. Okay, so Timothy must be different. There's our first observation. We've got to ask a question now. How is Timothy going to be different? 
Timothy's going to be different from the false teachers by following in Paul's example. And this is what he talks about uh, in the rest of verses 10 and 11. He says, You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, and sufferings. If Timothy, is, if Timothy can uh, emulate these things, he will be different. Okay? But I think we need to make an observation here. We can't skip over this. He begins this list of attributes with teaching. You know all about my teaching. Other translations use the word doctrine. St. Timothy, you know all about the things that I teach, the things that I proclaim, and my doctrine. And I think this is intentional. Paul is reminding Timothy that before he can progress in a practical working out of Christ's likeness and emulating the example of Paul, the example of Christ, he's got to be settled on what he believes to be true about God and about Jesus Christ. You know all about my teaching and my doctrine. you got to start there, right? Um, We have to be settled on what we believe before life change can happen. We have to be settled on that. Let me show you you a quote from a theologian, A.W. Tozer. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's where we have to start. What do you think about God? What do you believe about God? What do you believe about Jesus? You have to be settled on that before we can progress in patience and love and Christ-likeness. Because what we believe turns into what we do. What we do is the proof of what we believe. When we were going through 1 Timothy in the fall, one of the, one of the recurring uh, phrases was that right believing leads to right living, right? Our theology and our integrity matter because our theology influences what we do. And Paul's reminding Timothy of this. It's intentional that he starts by telling him, you know about my teaching. So I think we got to ask the question then, um, what was Paul's teaching? What was Paul's doctrine? What would Timothy have thought about when Paul reminded him, you know all about my teaching and my doctrine? What what could he have thought about in that moment? Um, That question, what was Paul's doctrine, that could be a very, very, very long conversation. Um, Conversation I'm not going to have right now. (laughs) Could be a long conversation. Lots of sermons could be given about the doctrine of Paul and his teaching. Lots of books could be written about it. Um, Read the book of Romans to understand Paul's doctrine. I might give you a... Maybe a brief synopsis here, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. If you would take that as a synopsis of Paul's doctrine. Saved by grace. Not because I made myself lovely to God. I am saved by grace, uh, by his his moving and not my moving. And we are God's handiwork. Other uh, translations use the word masterpiece there. We're God's masterpiece. When God looks at you, he sees his masterpiece. He's delighted. His handiwork. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. There is a practical working out of that identity, right? So, maybe a brief synopsis of what Paul meant when he talked about his teaching and his doctrine. 
Of course, this might not be what Timothy actually thought about when he read this, but this is Paul's doctrine, and this is what we got to be settled on. This is what we have to be firm in our belief, steadfast in our hope uh, in the grace of Jesus Christ before we can, before we can uh, progress in practical holiness. Let's go on to the rest of what he says in this uh, list of attributes. My teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, and sufferings. Much could be said about uh, the attributes that he lists there that Timothy is, is to embody and emulate. I want to focus on one of them. Okay? I'm going to focus on when he uses the word patience. He says, you know all about my patience. Because the word that he uses there probably is not, um, this, is, is not the same connotation we think of when we think of simple patience. Okay, the word that uh, Paul is using there is the Greek word macrothemia, and it is sometimes translated long-suffering in other places in the Bible, patience and long-suffering. The Greek literally means long-tempered, a long temper. Some other connotations of the word. It implies a patience in bearing troubles, patience in hard things when hard things happen to you, patience in those moments. It implies this. This is the, this is the one that's crazy, guys. Slowness in avenging wrongs. Macrothemia, slowness in avenging wrongs. Long-suffering, long-tempered, a slowness in avenging wrongs. The root word, the Greek root word for in macrothemia is defined as with long and enduring temper or leniently, leniently and patiently. It's a word with big implications, big implications. When we think about patience, we might think of it as like maintaining your composure when you don't get your way or delaying gratification for some amount of time, right? That's probably what we think of when we think of patience. I don't think of slowness in avenging wrongs done to me. That's not what I think of when I think of patience. I don't think of a long and enduring temper. I'm not going to get mad when things happen to me. But this is the implication of of the word that he's using here for patience, long-suffering. And I think that that meaning of the word comes to bear when we look at what Paul says directly following this. Okay, So at the end of verse 10 and verse 11, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. Paul had endured persecutions and sufferings, and he had done so with a long and enduring temper and a slowness in avenging wrongs. He mentions three places. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. So what happened to him in those places? What were the persecutions that he endured? Well, let's let's look at that. Um, In Antioch, he is kicked out of the city uh, for teaching the gospel in Acts chapter 13. In Iconium, he's nearly stoned. There's this this effort to, to stone Paul. It doesn't come to fruition. He makes it out, but he's nearly stoned. Um, in Acts chapter 14. And then later in Acts chapter 14, in Lystra, which is the last place that he mentions, he is stoned. He is stoned in Lystra, and his body is dragged out of the city 
and thrown out in a field and left there. Because it says in the text, in, in Acts chapter 14, they, it says that they thought he was dead. They stone him, they think he's dead, and they go throw his body out in the field and leave him there. Persecutions and sufferings. And in the midst of that, long-suffering, lenient, slowness in avenging wrongs. That's not my standard of patience. I don't know if that's your standard of patience, but that's not my standard of patience. And by the way, he's writing this in jail. Uh, just, get, you know, just to get another one in there. A slowness in avenging wrongs. Paul's not angry. He's in jail. He's been kicked out of cities. He's been stoned, left for dead. He's locked up, and he's not angry. He's long-suffering. And Timothy is to embody this same, um, this same character. You must be different, right? You, Timothy, must be different. How could Paul have possibly uh, remained patient and long-suffering in the midst of such adversity and challenge and near death? How could he do that? How could he do that? Well, he says in, uh, um, at the end of verse 11, the Lord rescued me from all of them. So Paul has seen the faithfulness of the Lord, and he believes that he will be rescued and delivered from where he is now. Right? Whether in, in life or death, God is going to rescue him. Um, but a second thing that I think might give us an indication about how Paul was able to remain long-suffering and patient in the midst of persecution is uh, verse, um, verse 12. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Yikes, right? Do we really want to talk about that one? Yeah, we're going to talk about that one. Um, this is a promise. Let's just make an observation here. This is the Bible telling us you will suffer and be persecuted for trying to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Staring us in the face. That will happen. It's not maybe. You might. Maybe someday. If it happens, no, it's, this will happen. This is a promise. Uh, when I was in college, I, um, I was a part of a campus ministry, and this guy invited me to do a Bible study with him. And it was a simple Bible study. The Bible study was this. We read through the book of Isaiah, and I was supposed to make note of everywhere that God said he was going to do something. Or everywhere that God said something will happen to his people or for his people. And the, 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 the point of the Bible study was that those are God's promises to his people. And what we know about God is that when he promises something, he does what he says he's going to do. So we claim those promises. And as a result of that Bible study, I've, I've pulled promises out of that Bible study that I still pray over my life today. Um, it's made me sensitive to places in Scripture where it says something will happen. This is not one that I normally pray over my life, okay? This is not, this is not one that I am, like, pleading with God over, um, that, th that he would deliver on this promise. But here it is, staring us in the face. Um, and we love, we love promises of God, okay? So let me, let me paint you a picture. And before I paint this picture, i got to caveat it, all right? I'm going to tell you, I'm going to... 
paint a picture of an imaginary house, okay? And let me tell you that this imaginary house has been my house, okay? Um, it's been my house. So no, there's no criticism here. There's no judgment here. This has been my house too. But let me just paint a picture, okay? You walk into a house, all right? Um, you're walking in the hall. You got a giant gather sign in the wispy cursive font. Yes, okay, so gather, yes. Maybe on the other side of the hall, you've got the Times New Roman, like it's a poster, Times New Roman font in the bottom right-hand corner, one word with a period, family, boom. Grace, boom, period. Faith, period, right? Maybe also, maybe the wispy cursive font too. I think mine's Times New Roman, but. Okay, then when you get down the hall a little bit more, probably in this imaginary house, you're going to find framed a little bit of Jeremiah 29, 11 action, right? Okay, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and to harm you. Plans, plans, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in a future. A wonderful promise that we claim, and we should, and we ought to, because it's real, right? Or maybe further down the hall, maybe there's a picture of an eagle, okay? And beneath it is Isaiah 40, 31, Whoever hopes in the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings, with wings like eagles and soar. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. A wonderful promise that I pray over my life. How hilarious would it be if you got down to the end of the hall and again framed in the wispy cursive font is, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Doesn't fit the vibe, right? It does, not, it does not fit the vibe. It sticks out. We're not putting this one in a frame, right? We're not putting it in the wispy cursive font. We're not putting it in our, in our halls for everyone to see. But here it is. And it's a promise. Just like all the others. And what do we make of that? Persecution of Christians has looked different in various places, periods, and contexts. But it has always been real. It's always been real, and it will always continue to be real. Uh, certainly, we don't face the same kind of persecutions that Paul did. Uh, there are people, Christians, in other places in the world that do, but we don't hear. So what do we face here? What, what, what does this look like for us here? I don't have this on a slide. I'll just read it to you. I think that uh, 1 Peter 4.4 4, uh, describes well what persecution might look like for us. 1 Peter 4.4 4 says this, um, he's talking about non-believers, okay? They, non-believers, they are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. There are other translations that say they think it's strange that you do not join them, right? They're surprised. They think it's strange that we don't join them or we live a different way and they heap abuse on us for that. Does anyone think you're strange? Or has anyone thought you strange? Is anyone surprised? Is anyone surprised at your life? If not, why not? Why is that not the case? Because this is a promise, right? But it is a promise for those that want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. And if so... If people are surprised at you or think you strange uh, for how you live your life, uh, it's the same question. Why is that? 
Why do people think you are strange? Why are people surprised at you? Why might that be? Because, remember, long-suffering, lenient, patient, slowness in avenging wrongs. That's pretty strange. That is strange, right? If people think you are strange, is it because of the way that you live your life? Is it because of the way that you live your life people think that's strange? Or is it because of the way that you comment on the lives of those people that don't do what you do? Because there's a difference between those two things. The former is all about you. You, however, must be different. The latter is all about how you react to what other people do. There's a difference. People ought to be surprised at us and think us strange because of our long-suffering patience and not because of our anger and unkindness. Anger and unkindness aren't strange. Long-suffering patience, leniency, enduring temper, slowness in avenging wrongs, that is very strange. I think we need to draw another implication out of this verse. Because the fact that it's a promise, persecution, suffering, the fact that it's a promise means that when it happens, because it will, right? When it happens, you ought not be surprised about that. You ought not be taken off guard about that. That's what you should expect to happen, right? Like sometimes when, um, sometimes when we see people doing things that we don't do or criticizing us for doing things that we do do, we are quick to uh, respond to that in retaliation and go on defensive, right? We're quick to be offended by that. Why? Don't we know that's going to happen? It's exactly what we should expect to happen. Uh, Ross Green is a, a clinical psychologist who has written a number of books about uh, behaviorally challenging kids for uh, parents and, and teachers and educators. Um, one of his kind of primary ideas that he puts forward in his writing is that we shouldn't be surprised when kids misbehave. Shouldn't be surprised when kids don't do what you ask them to do. Why? Because they're kids, right? If they could do what you were asking them to do, they would just do it. But they can't because they're kids. So don't be surprised when they don't, aren't able to do what you ask them to do. Um, I needed this mentality one time. Uh, when I was in college, I worked at a summer camp every, every year I was in college. And the structure of this camp was a five-week camp, okay? So high school kids would come up here. Uh, camp was in the shadow of Pikes Peak. They'd come up. They would live at the camp property for five weeks straight. Um, while they were there, they'd be in Bible studies. They'd get discipled by our staff people. Um, and then they would also they'd do all the fun camp stuff too, right? Like lake stuff and camp stuff. But they would also work. They would cook the food, clean up, clean the bathrooms, right? Clean up the camp property. It was awesome. And some of you with high school kids are like, sign me up. Get them up there for five weeks to work, man. That's crazy. Um, When I was there, there was one time where it was at the beginning of the new new summer. And when the kids come, we kind of give them a tour of camp and show them around, say here's this and that, and train them up on what they're going to be doing. And then we eat dinner, and 
there's no one there to clean it up, right? Because we're the ones that have to clean it up. We've got to clean up after ourselves. So we get out a bunch of brooms and go start passing out brooms to these high school kids for, for us to clean up. So I walk up to this girl. She's like 14-year-old freshman in high school, right? I walk up to this girl, and I hand her a broom, and she kind of like is super puzzled. And she takes the broom and, you know, kind of like looks around and looks at me and looks at me and is like, we have to clean? And I was like, oh, man, you did not know what this was <laughs> when your parents sent you up here. You have no idea what this is. Um, and for the whole rest of the five weeks, guys, I was frustrated because I could not get this girl to help, right? I could not get her to, like, pick up a broom and help us clean. Um, she had not learned a work ethic yet, and it was frustrating. And I was having a really hard time with this, and I was mad and mad at her, and, you know, it was just not, not good. Now, I wish that present me could go back to past me and grab past me by the shoulders because past me would say something like this. Past me would say, well, this girl is lazy. She's lazy. She doesn't know how to work. She won't do what I'm asking her to do. And she's mad all the time. And then now future me, I need a little bit of Ross Green influence, right? So present me would say to past me, okay, you're telling me that this 14-year-old high school freshman who is away from her family for five weeks straight, sleeping in a tent with a bunch of strangers who clearly didn't know what she was getting into. You're telling me that she is having a hard time regulating her emotions? You're telling me that she's nervous, right? Like, you're telling me that she is a little scared and defensive? Shocker. That's exactly what you should expect in that context. The reason I'm telling you this story is because when people that do not love Jesus, for whatever reason, disagree with us because we love Jesus, that's exactly what you should expect them to do. That's exactly what we should expect. Because it's right here, right? This will happen, and we ought not be surprised by that. There have been times in my life where I'm quick to be offended, man. I'm quick to be offended uh, when I feel like I'm being criticized for what I believe about Jesus. There's been times where I'm quick to be offended by that, and I have to ask myself, why? That's exactly what I should expect to have happen. We typically think of suffering and persecution as something to be avoided and fought against, right? I got to avoid it. Can't happen. Because when it does happen, we're like, oh, my, this isn't fair, right? Like, I'm entitled to not have this happen to me. We think of it as something to avoid, something to fight against. The New Testament describes it as something to be expected. And not only that, but embraced, Paul invited Timothy to suffer with him. He's telling him it's going to happen. Jesus said the world will hate you. In his letter to the Philippians, in Philippians chapter 1, Paul tells the Philippians that it has been granted to them to suffer. It's a privilege, dare I say that. That's not what we want to hear. 
Why? Suffering helps us identify. Helps us identify with Jesus. Because Jesus did not think of his suffering as something to be avoided. He did not try to fight against it. He did not run from it. He was not offended by it. He did not try to avoid his suffering. And my friends, it is a very, very good thing that he did not. It's a very good thing that he did not hope to avoid his suffering. Because he suffered for sin, my sin, now I don't have to. And if he had chosen not to, if he had said, I can't do it, I am entitled to something else, which he was, by the way, in a way that I'm not. If he had ran from it, guess what? Now I don't have the choice. But he did not run from it. For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. And it's a good thing for me that he did. And if we want to be conformed to the image of Christ, if we want to grow in Christ's likeness, then we would take the same attitude for suffering and persecution. Okay. We're going to move on from that verse now. <laughs> We're going to go to the last couple verses in the chapter. Um, he's, going to, he's going to move on to uh, a different idea. Okay. So we'll pick up in verse 14. We'll pick up in verse 14. We're going to try to answer these three questions, verses 14 through 17. What does it mean that all Scripture is God-breathed? How is Scripture useful to Timothy, and how can we engage with Scripture? So let me read it, uh, verses 14 through 17. But as for you, there it is again, right? You, as for you, Timothy, you're going to be different. Continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Lots of implications Lots of implications in these, in these words. Did you guys catch from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures? Man, from infancy. Timothy's like walking around and he knows that he's being exposed to the Holy Scriptures as a, as a toddler. Um, we're talking about the Old Testament here, right? Paul is referencing the Old Testament. Um, it's, not com- it's not uncommon for you know, Jewish kids in that time to be raised up with constant exposure to... Um, the Holy Scriptures, meaning the Old Testament in this context. And when we think about it being the Old Testament, this statement um, in verse 15, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, that takes a different flavor when we think about it being the Old Testament, right? That hits a little bit different. The Old Testament is able to make us wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. That might not be what we typically think of when we think about the Old Testament. But here it is, Paul telling us that that's, that's true. Um, we don't have time to get into the weeds on that. I would, if you want to see that, I would suggest that you go take a look at Isaiah chapter 53. It's a description of the, the life of Jesus and his purpose many hundreds of years before Jesus was on the earth. Able to make us wise for salvation in Christ Jesus the Old Testament is. Okay, let's think about this uh, all scripture is God-breathed. 
What does that mean? Um, This is an important verse for the theological doctrines of the inspiration, infallibility, and inerrancy of of the scriptures. Those are big words that basically mean this. When we read this book, we are reading words that have been breathed and given by God to us through the pens of the prophets, the apostles, and the biblical authors. When we read this, we are reading God's words, breathed by him, given to us, given to us. It's a very high esteem to hold this this book in. Here's some implications for that, okay? If If this is breathed by God, if these are God's word given to us, here's what it means. If it says I'm wrong about something, then I am wrong about that thing. What it says about God and about people and about life is the truth about God and about people and about life. And there's no question. It is the truth. This is a really phenomenal claim for the Bible to make about itself, right? It is claiming to be absolute divine truth. It is perfect, exactly the way God has intended it to be, given to us so that we could know him. Claims of absolute truth are not popular in 2023. Not popular. But Jesus held the scriptures in that kind of regard. Jesus often quoted the Old Testament in his earthly ministry. Jesus said that heaven and earth would pass away, but my words will never pass away. Like, he is the, the end of the matter. And what this says is the end of the matter, and the beginning of the matter, and the middle of the matter, and every part. And do we think about it like that? Do we think about it like that? Because that's how the Bible presents itself. That's how God has presented his word to us. Now, I think that... Um, let me point out just a couple more things about uh, the last couple verses here. All scripture is God-breathed, and because it is God-breathed, it is useful. It is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness, right? Paul is reminding Timothy um, that he needs this, right? You need to take advantage of and rely on God's word. But what is it useful for? Remember, but you, right? You will be different. Notice uh, in verse 17, it's God-breathed and it's useful so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's useful to teach and rebuke and correct and train in righteousness me and you and Timothy, right? Like it is useful for us. We can't think to say it's God-breathed, it's useful for correcting and teaching and training and righteousness for those people, Right? Like, those people need it. It's useful for those people. No, 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 no. It's, it is God-breathed and it's useful for the servant of God to be thoroughly equipped for every good work, for me and for you and for Timothy. Because you will be different, right? And we need this to help us there. It's necessary for Timothy's, for Timothy's work and his integrity 
Now, I want to offer a, pers- a, a I want to I want to just offer a different perspective here. Okay, I think that sometimes when we talk about the final authority and the truth claims of the Bible, sometimes that is difficult to think about because the Bible makes sometimes confusing uh, statements, right? And of course, like I mentioned, this is we're living in a time where absolute truth is not popular. Um, I think there might be two ways to respond to the idea that this is breathed by God. One way could be to say, the Bible, if, if we're confronted with the idea that the Bible is authoritative, absolute truth, one way to respond to that might be, that is too rigid for me. That is too rigid for me to accept, and I, I, cannot, I cannot accept that. Right? And many do have that response. Another response would be this, that God gave us, in grace and mercy, God gave us the means to know exactly who he is, what he likes, what he thinks about us. He didn't have to do that. So yes, it is absolute truth, and yes, it makes claims of authority. But guys, when we're talking about matters of of God and life, I want to know that this is absolute absolute truth. I want to know that this is authoritative. Because we're not talking about small things here. We're talking about life and godliness and salvation. I want to know that this is breathed by God. God wrote a book and gave it to us. Everything we need to know him is here. And that is an invitation. It's an invitation. This is grace. This is grace to give us what we need to know him personally. And we can. We just got to pick this up. I want to show you um, one more cross-reference here. It's from a story in John chapter 6. It's at the very, the very end of John chapter 6. I'll show you the verse, and then we'll, we'll talk about the context of it briefly. This is at the very end of John chapter 6. A lot happens in John chapter 6. Jesus says some things about himself. He calls himself the bread of life. Uh, he tells people that unless they drink his blood and eat his flesh, they have no part with him. He says some crazy things. And at the end of the chapter, the people that, a lot of the people that were following him and listening to him say, you're crazy, man, and I'm out. Like, this dude's crazy, I can't accept that, I'm gone. A lot of people leave. So Jesus looks at the 12, and he asks them, you don't want to leave too, do you? And this is Peter's response. Lord, to whom whom shall we go? You have the words. You have the words of eternal life, and we've come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. This is the type of mentality that I pray for myself to have about this book. Where else am I going to go? These are the words of eternal life. Jesus has the words of eternal life. God has provided the words of eternal life in this book. Where else am I going to go? Where else am I going to go for wisdom? Where else am I going to go for instruction? Where else am I going to go for truth about who God is and what he thinks about me? Where else am I going to go? <clears throat> I want to end on a practical note, okay? Because I feel like when we talk about the, 
the idea of the scriptures being God-breathed. I don't want us to get stuck in like mental spinning out, right? Like that's a big idea, and I don't want it, I don't want to get stuck there. I want to end on a practical note because since this is God-breathed, well that that means I can do something with that, right? Like that should mean something for my life. Okay, so on a practical note, uh, worship band, you guys can make your way back up here. On a practical note, um, here are five ways, five ways that we can engage with God's word. Number one, read it. Oh, man, how revolutionary is that, right? That was a big, big climax and not, yeah, read it. Oh, my gosh, wow, crazy. Uh, you can read it. Read it a lot. Read it a little, but read it. You can listen to it. Um, on my drive to work, I have an audio Bible app that I use that reads me the Bible. My man David. My man David reads me the Bible. He's got a silky British accent. It's great. It's great. You can study it, which is different than reading it. You can memorize parts of it. Hide it in your heart. You can meditate on it, ruminate on it. Let it sit in your mind. Focus on it. Five practical ways to engage with the Bible and I would challenge you to try these things and just see what happens. Just see what God shows you. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is breathed by you. It is useful. It is the truth, and we can rely on it and depend on it. Thank you that your words never pass away, Jesus. Thank you that you did not shy from suffering, but for the joy that was set before you endured the cross. Uh, would we worship you for the rest of our time together this morning? Would we worship you, um, worship you in joy? In your name I pray, amen.